0: You know, when we think about God with us, I mean, I don't know what comes to your mind. You think, I need God with me. I'm going through a crisis. Or, you know, God was really with me in that situation. And you kind of walk through all those different kind of scenarios where you use that phrase, God is with us. What God understood about you and about me, about the entire world, was that without him being with us, without that presence of God, there's something that's so void in us And one of the challenges that we have whenever we present the claims of Christ to people is the challenge of truthfulness. Did God really come? And how do we know that's true? I've had many, many discussions with people that are atheist or agnostic, people who reject truth or reject the God of the Bible. And all of that, one of the things that I always like to bring back to the forefront is the idea of fulfilled prophecy. The things spoken in the Old Testament literally have been fulfilled. In fact, so much so that we could write entire volumes about all the fulfillment of Scripture that we find in the prophecy in the Word of God. But let's go to another way. Let's look at it from this perspective. A scientist by the name of Peter Stoner, who was a A colleague associate of Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan you know was not a believer but Peter Stoner was and their life took a very very different perspective. Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks and throughout this volume what he does is he illustrates how science confirms the word of God how the Bible is very unique. In fact, when we talk about fulfilled prophecy, the Bible is the only book that literally you can take and read something that was written six, 700, or 800 years ago and find biblical fulfillment of it in the day of Jesus or even in our own day. Well, here's what he did. He, taught, he began to talk about the science of probability. That is, what are the odds, for example, that one man in history— could fulfill just eight of the 60 major prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ, but the major prophecies about 60. The probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even eight such prophecies would be 1 to 10 to the 17th power. Now, let's look what that number looks like. That's one with 17 zeros after it. Now that's hard for me to understand because I typically have a ten dollar bill in my pocket and I don't have a lot of zeros after it. How about you? But let's think about if we could illustrate that in this way. Let's suppose that you took silver dollars and you took enough silver dollars that was one to the 17th power and you spread them across the state of Texas. That would cover the state of Texas in two feet deep of silver dollars. Does that help put it in perspective? Now let's mark one of the silver dollars and let's blindfold a man and he gets one try to find the one that has a mark on it. And he can go anywhere he wants in the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. The likelihood of him finding that particular silver dollar is one to ten, that is ten to the 17th power. So we see that what's the probability of this? It's nil. It's impossible unless you understand that God was behind all of this. And the reason that's important for us, if God is behind, if he's the author and the architect of the divine word of God, then God is also the author and the architect of your life. And your life has significance, and God has not taken his hand off of you or taken his eyes off of you. God indeed wants you to understand that this book is truly the living word of God, unique among all other books uh, that speak of God on planet Earth. So what I want to do is I want to take you through as a way to introduce for this month some of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and I want to show you scripturally how those unfold. The first one I want to look at is Jesus' mother would be a virgin. The prophecy was given in roughly 701 B.C. by Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah wrote these words. Now remember, when Isaiah wrote, he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What that means is the Holy Spirit was guiding the process. The Holy Spirit was ensuring the accuracy of what was written. So we read this. Therefore, the Lord himself... Will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, so Isaiah, writing 700 years before the birth of Christ, writes and says, One is coming, he will be born of a virgin, and he is going to be called Emmanuel, that is, God with us. When was that fulfilled? Well, a lot of people try to understand the chronology and try to place where exactly was Jesus born? What day? We kind of think it must have been 1 A.D., one minute after midnight. But actually, it was probably somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C. Now, we know that just from the history of what was happening. We know that uh, of the tax records. We know that of of movements of, of people. And we can pretty well pinpoint that. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 shows the fulfillment of it. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, that's one. You say, well, couldn't anybody just kind of put those pieces together and say that? Remember the rule of probability. We just take eight of the prophecies. And it jumps the probability to 1 uh, to 10 to the 10th, 17th power. So we're we're reeling with something here that's very, very unusual when it comes to prophecy. Now, let's go to the next one. Jesus will be born in the town of Bethlehem. So now we're not just saying he's going to be born. He's going to be born of a virgin. But we're going to go a little bit more, a little narrower. We're going to say a particular town. Imagine this. Imagine that you were going to make a prophecy that a city was going to exist or there would be a city and a boy would be born in a particular place at a particular time and you would have no knowledge of that at all. How would you say, well, he's going to be born in Cincinnati, going to be born 700 years from today and and that, that boy is going to have the name, his parents are going to name him this and he's going to do this, this and this and this. You see the probability is out the roof. So Born in the town of Bethlehem. The prophecy, Micah wrote, 686 B.C. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler of Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Now what makes Micah's prophecy very, very interesting here is notice what it says. Though you're the little among Judah. So already they're, they're, you see the fulfillment of this prophecy of the tribe of Judah. Yet out of you shall come forth the one, the one, the Messiah everyone was looking for, the one who will be what? The ruler of Israel who's going forth. This is points to eternity are from old, from everlasting. So this Messiah who's coming is not a man. This Messiah who's coming is God, a very God. It says from old, that is from everlasting, that is from eternity. Fulfilled, 4 BC, Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and 7. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Okay, so now we see a prophecy, particular town, born and fulfilled. George uh, Koenig wrote this, the prophecy is effective uh, in a simple way. It eliminates all other cities and towns throughout the world as a place in which the Messiah could be born. It narrows the possibilities to one tiny village just south of Jerusalem. So we might put it in perspective and say, "Well, well, Los Angeles, no, actually be born in Anaheim Hills. And you start to narrow this down, and so you increase the probability. What makes it also interesting is the Talmud, which is the Jewish writings that are commentaries, they're, they're, they're trying to explain scripture, wrote this. In the Jerusalem Talmud, it says, The King Messiah, from where does he come forth? From the royal city of Bethlehem in Judah. So it was commonly held among all Jews, that indeed the Messiah would come out of that small town called Bethlehem. Let's go to the next one. Jesus will be called out of Egypt. The prophecy was written by Hosea, 725 B.C. In Hosea chapter 11, in verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, we're taking very little narrow bites of these prophecies, and if you study them greater depth, but we want to give you an, a, an overview, because what I want you to do in this message is I want you to have a confidence in the Word of God. You know, a lot of times people will ask me, well, you know, isn't the Bible just written by men? Isn't it just uh, like any other religious book? I mean, how do you really put stock in that book? And I always put the challenge of history to it. You know, most people want to defend the Bible from a spiritual standpoint or from a religious standpoint. They want to say, well, the Bible says it and that settles it. Well, that doesn't settle it for everyone. That only settles it for you. The skeptic looks at it and says, now, wait a minute. It's just a book written by other men. Well, if we compare it, if we eliminate religion from it for a moment, we approach it uh, uh, simply from a, a standpoint of history, And we look at it and say, how does it stack up in its accuracy with other historical documents? How does Jesus stack up with other persons in history? Is there any way we can kind of nail this down and say there's anything accurate about this? Let me just show you a little bit. If we take, for example, the writings of Napoleon, everything was written about Napoleon, by Napoleon, and about Napoleon— and what you do in history, when you kind of examine these documents of antiquity, you take how many documents do we have, how old are they, and how many discrepancies do we have, and you create a formula. Historians do this with all documents. And when they come up with a formula and they say, this is the likelihood, for example, that Napoleon actually existed, did what he said he did. Now, I believe there was a Napoleon. And I think most people in this room would say, oh, yeah, there was a Napoleon. You know, I know that guy. I've seen him on paintings. I've seen him in books. i studied him in history. Well, if I do that and I kind of compare those notes, I only come up with about a 53% chance there actually was a Napoleon because there's so many contradictions. And we're only going back a few hundred years. We're not going back 2,000 years. And yet we believe there was a Napoleon. And we believe Napoleon did certain things. And yet from history... It only points to about 53%. Let's take another historical figure. Let's take a guy by the name of George Washington. You know that guy? George, founder of our, of our country, right? He chopped the cherry tree down. I believe he really did that. It just makes him a more interesting character, if I believe that. George Washington, he's on my quarter. He's on, you know, he's on currency. He's, he's stamped everywhere. We believe there was a George Washington, right? And if I asked for a show of hands, how many of you would say, yeah, show of hands? I'd say, I believe there is a George Washington, Okay, let's do the same thing. Let's take how much time we have, a few hundred years. Let's take the number of documents written by him and by others about him, and let's find out the number of contradictions. We only come up with about a 79% chance there was actually a George Washington. Okay, but I believe there was a George Washington. Well, now let's just take it to Jesus Christ. And now let's not go back a few hundred years. Let's go back 2,000 years, and let's take what's written in this book, but let's not just stay with this book. Let's take the writings of secular historians and Jewish historians. Let's write what his critics had to say and also what his friends had to say. And let's apply the same thing. And forget religion for a moment. Forget spirituality. Let's just move in the area of historical documentation. What we do is when we do that, we come up with, and remember, the longer it is, the more likelihood you have that there's going to be errors in any document. That's a rule of history. You come up with about a 97 to 98% chance there was a Jesus Christ who did what he said he did and he lives today. Now, that's just history. So, whenever I begin to talk to somebody about the Bible, I don't immediately start with, well, I believe it and that settles it. Okay? I begin with, well, let me ask you a few questions. And people will say, well, I believe in science. Science is kind of the, the big thing in my life. I believe science is true. And I always say, which period of science do you refer to? Do you refer to 100 years ago or today? What if, what if scientists discover a God gene? What does that do to your, your faith in science? You see, it completely destroys science because now you have God showing up in your belief system." And so, you can go to the Pasteur Institute, and the Pasteur Institute supposedly has one book of every science book ever written on a shelf. It's supposedly like three and a half miles long. Which one's accurate? You see, what God wants us to understand is even though this book is not a science book or it's not designed to be a history book, it is accurate. I just had this discussion with a young man this past week who, who claimed to be um, an atheist. An atheist. And by the time the conversation was over, he prayed and received Jesus Christ. All right? Amen. But when you begin to think about this idea of, of what we believe in and, and how you put your faith in something, um, if, you, if you start to, to ask these, these serious kinds of questions, if you are, an honest doubter or a dishonest doubter? Do you really believe there is a God or you just say there is no God? And, and you begin to process people through. People begin to come to an understanding of the reality of Almighty God because you cannot deny him. You cannot, you cannot ultimately pull away from him. And the best argument is just an invitation to examine the facts, look into it, see what's, what this is all about. So it says here that the prophecy would be in Hosea 11:1 that when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. Again, fulfilled, 4 BC. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Again. Fulfillment, biblical narrative, scripture. There it is. It's laid out in front of us. Jesus will be a member of the tribe of Judah. Here's another prophecy. The prophecy was written 1400 B.C., so now we're not going back six or 700 years. We're going back 1400 years in the book of Genesis, and this 49th chapter is an amazing chapter. I encourage you to read it sometime. But it says here, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, what that means is that the king will come from Judah. The scepter is what the king held, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh is peace, the prince of peace. When the prince of peace comes, it says, and he shall call forth the obedience of the people. When was that fulfilled? Fulfilled in 4 B.C., Luke chapter 3, verses 23 and 33. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, the son of Judah. So when you look at the chronologies, and you know, you ever open up your Bible and you read the chronology, you typically only do it at Christmas time, and you say, well, you know, who is, how does this whole thing kind of shake out? And you find that Jesus was a part of this tribe of Judah. This prophecy that reaches back to Genesis chapter uh, 49 tells us about which tribe he would be a part of. Again, we're narrowing down this biblical narrative. We're trying to understand a little bit more about what God is, is up to. So let's go. Jesus then would be from the, lion, from the lineage of the king of David. So we're not, now we're not just in the tribe. Now we're bringing this down to King David himself. And this was written in Jeremiah 586 B.C. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper. So Jeremiah says, the days are coming, I'm gonna raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper. Fulfilled, Matthew chapter one and verse six. Jesse begot David, the king, David, the king, begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Here we see this this royal lineage coming down to Jesus, tracing itself back through Solomon, back through David, and we see that fulfillment. Jesus would be crucified. Before I go to the scripture, I want to tell you a story. I was on a plane from Israel coming back to the United States, and the group had stayed on, and I had to come back early, And I got on the plane, and sitting next to me was a lady with a couple of little kids. And she was a a resident of Israel. She was Jewish. She was not a Christian. And we began to dialogue just about different things. And um, I said, you know, I'm a Christian, but you're a follower of Judaism, right? Yes. I said, could I ask you a question? Because I'm a little perplexed. And I opened up my Bible to the book of Isaiah and the 53rd chapter. And I said, and fortunately that Bible, it was a new Bible, it, didn't, it wasn't all marked up and said, you know, this is Jesus and stuff like that. It was just a brand new clean page. And I said, would you just read these verses to me and would you just tell me who this is because this is one of your books. This is your book, right? Isaiah the prophet. Oh, she said, yes, I'll do that. Now I just want to flip over and I want to read to you what I had her read. And then I want to give you her reaction when she got done. It reads like this. Who has believed our report? To whom has the Lord, the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the ground. He has no form of comeliness, and when we see him there is nothing of beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and yet we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes are we healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he, yet he opened not his mouth. He was as a lamb before the slaughter, as a sheep before the shears. he was silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I said, who is that? Who is that? And she said, it can only be one person. I said, who is that? And a bit soft-spoken, she said, it's Jesus. There's no way you can read that and not see Jesus. And in that moment, you saw divine revelation striking a soul, striking a heart but tradition and religion preventing decision. You see, we let a lot of things get in the way of our decision. We can be inspired, we can be moved of God, but either we're in bondage to our past, to our traditions, to our religion, to our own unique understanding, and we find ourselves trapped unwilling to move forward, even though God speaks clearly to us. I saw it in her eyes, and I knew the dilemma she found herself in. It was the dilemma of revelation, but tradition held stronger. Maybe eternity will tell us something different. I don't even recall her name. But maybe the Spirit of God got a hold of her and began to move her. You see, we never really know when we share the good news, we share the gospel, we share the story with people, the effect it's going to have and the seed that we plant, what it's going to do in the long haul. It's our job simply to tell the story. And when we begin to tell the story powerfully with the word of God, because what was powerful was not my presentation. It was not whether or not I said it the right way or or whatever. I didn't even read it. It was when the word of God is put into, the, into a person's hand and they begin to look at it, the word of God is living and active and it begins to spark faith in a heart. And when you begin to spark that faith in a heart, all of a sudden that ignites the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to minister and to draw those people in to faith in Jesus Christ. So when I give you these scriptures about fulfilled prophecy, what we're really doing is we're giving you a way a tool that you can say, let me show you what I found out. Let me walk you through some things that, that at least are interesting. I never, never reduce yourself down to an argument. People say, well, I don't really believe that. I said, okay, well, just, I mean, don't you think it's interesting? Do you think it's just coincidence? What do you think? I mean, there's a lot of coincidences in the Bible. And I, and I always find myself asking the questions. It's a key to, to kind of sharing your faith. And the reason we want to set you up for this in this first message for, for December is because we want you sharing your faith. We want you telling the story. We want you to go out with confidence that the Bible is the word of God. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. All the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it abides forever. Let's look at this scripture, prophecy from Zechariah. 520 BC, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Isn't that interesting? Jesus died. He was pierced through, wasn't he? Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. Now think about that prophecy. Who does this sound like to you? You know what's interesting about it? Crucifixion wasn't even a part of culture in 520 B.C. It would only be developed later by a guy by the name of Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. He would... or if you would, invent crucifixion. So when Zechariah is writing, he's writing several hundred years before crucifixion was even known. And he's narrowing it down into where it's going to happen in Jerusalem, but there's gonna be a spirit of grace and supplication. It's not gonna be you're crucifying someone and they're angry and they're, they're cursing at you. No, there's grace and supplication. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they will look on him that they pierced. They looked at him. Remember what the soldier said? Truly this was the son of God. Something was happening as they looked upon him. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Specific details. Grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Fulfilled? Luke chapter twenty three, thirty three, four BC, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, and the other on the left. Again, let's go back to the Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud wrote these words What is the cause of the mourning in Zechariah chapter twelve and verse ten? It is well according to him who explains that the cause is the slaying of Messiah. Now think about that. They knew that that scripture had to do with the Messiah. The son of Joseph, as it is written, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. In the writings of the Talmud, when they looked at that story, they said this is none other than the son of Joseph, the Messiah. In the Jewish writings, they saw it. See, not everyone was blind to what God was up to, what God was doing. What I want you to understand today is that the God who wrote prophecy is the God who has your, hand, your very life in his hand. It's a God who loves you. It's a God who, who has ordained your days. It's a God who, who has a plan for everything that's out in the future for you. And you never have to fall back and say, what am I going to do and how am I going to get through this? Because God has got it. What you have to do is step back and say, God, would you please take this? Would you, I know you've got a plan. I know you've got my life in your hand. But God, I don't know how this works. I don't know how to put all these pieces together and just give it to God. Give it to God. I wrote a declaration of faith that I want us to share. I want to share it together. I want us all to read it. So let's just stand together and share this declaration of faith. There are 353 prophecies in the Old Testament that relate to Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in the word of God, you put your faith in prophetic words that God has spoken that will bring about fulfillment in your life. Let's repeat this together. I believe that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled or will fulfill all 353 prophecies of the Old Testament. I believe that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I believe that he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. I believe that he is the only way to God and the only hope for mankind. Amen. Let's close our eyes. I'm going to have the band come and we're going to let the spirit of God speak to us. I pray that during this time that your confidence in the word of God went up. Another level. I pray that as you look at the scripture, you look at it differently. You look at it as the word of God that truly can be verified, though it doesn't need to be in most people's mind, but can be verified historically. I want you to see that the word of God that he wrote, he wrote about you, he wrote about your coming and going, your ups, your downs, the challenges you face in life like everyone else, the complexity of trying to make a living, raise a family, find the right job, the right spouse, the right school, the challenge you have in trying to navigate through physical setbacks and difficulties or financial despair, The God who wrote that book is a God who is here. He is here with you right now. Maybe you would pray something like this, Lord, author of the divine Bible, the word of God, author of my eternal soul, right now I need you. I need you to fill me with faith. Fill me with confidence. Allow me to see my future from your perspective. To see that the Bible was written for my benefit. That I might be encouraged, that I might be joyful, that I might be strengthened. That I might know that I have a great and blessed hope in you. God, I want to push fear out of the way and push faith in its place. Take my eyes, God, off the circumstances that I deal with every day and let me fix my eyes firmly on you. Just give him praise right now in your own heart, in your own words. God, you are the great God, the mighty God. God, you are the God of salvation, you are the God of eternity, and I praise you. And I welcome you, God, I welcome you right now into my life and into my my situation. Some of you may be broken, and you feel like you're not fixable. Trust me, God fixes all things, he makes all things new. Some of you may be embarrassed by your situation. Jesus died for our shame, to take it away. Some of you may be guilty because you failed. You're embarrassed by your behavior. Would you just give that to Jesus right now? Would you let him just take over that situation? Let him minister to you right now? See, walking with Christ is all about release. I have to release the things I hold too tightly in order to gain what God wants to do in me. Right now, what do you need to release? Just release it. Jesus, I release this. I release that. What are you releasing? Just release it right now. One by one, release it.